Are you still mixing station gas and oil for your string trimmer, leaf blower, or chainsaw? Eliminate the mess and the guesswork with True Fuel, the original pre-mixed two-cycle fuel. True Fuel is ethanol-free and precision-engineered for small engines, improving performance, and extending the life of your outdoor power equipment. And True Fuel is available for both two- and four-cycle engines. Empower your equipment with True Fuel. Available at your local home and garden center today. Introducing the SND Podcast channel, your one-stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We can be reached on all social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, a beauty production presents... The most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, episode 14. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And Jose, we're doing an entire podcast on just the NFL this week. A lot going on as we head into. We're getting very late into the season, week 13 already. Yeah, playoffs are right around the corner. We already separated the pretenders from the contenders and a lot of surprising teams still in the mix. I mean, if you would have told me, we're, lo- we're looking at a playoff scenario here in 2017 where you could see the Rams and the Jaguars in the same playoffs, I would have called you crazy probably to start the year. Yeah, just especially in the NFC, it just seems like it's always constantly changing. You know, it, we see a lot of times Seattle emerges, then Minnesota, like you said, the Rams, the Saints, and the AFC definitely a lot more consistent than the NFC when it comes to those top couple of teams. But we're going to jump right into episode 14, both of us from New York, and both of us Giant fans, and a lot going on this week when it comes to the New York Giants, especially with Eli Manning, and he started every game. Since November 21st, 2004, 210 consecutive regular season games. But that streak's going to come to an end this week as he's not going to play as the Giants are going to go with Geno Smith. And this is a real strange move that we see Ben McAdoo, Eli Manning, Jerry Reese, John Mara all semi-agreeing to the move. That Eli won't start. He was offered a chance to start the first half of a football game and then get taken out for the second half so that the Giants can see what they have at quarterback. And Jose, break it down for me. Like, what's your opinion on all this? Well, I think it's complete bullcrap, to say the least. But I, I mean, I can try and use a more scientific word, but I think bullcrap is the answer for it. Tell me how you really feel. I mean, oh, I will. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of mixed emotions about this move. First of all, of course, as you said, as a Giants fan, you know, we literally grew up watching Eli Manning play for the New York Giants. It's tough to watch. That's a historic streak. Two hundred and ten straight games. I mean, you're talking about no injuries during that time, uh, two Super Bowls during that time. And yes, he led the league in interceptions a couple of times as well, too. But Eli Manning is a great guy, great man, great quarterback, too, for at least in New York Giants history. And the guy does everything from on and off the field to being a great person on it to being a great person off of it. I know he had the memorabilia thing, you know, scandal going on, whatever. But all that aside, Eli Manning has been a fixture for the New York Giants. And, you know, it's one of those things where it sucks to see his streak end. I mean, again, he's such a good quarterback for New York. 
He's done a lot for the Giants. He's a guy that never really goes out there and complains uh, through all the ups and downs that the Giants have had because they've had their highs and they've had their lows before. I mean, even in tough losses in the playoffs and stuff like that, he's always the guy to answer the call, to answer to the media and stuff like that. So it sucks to see all this end. But now when you look under the microscope of this Giants season, this, this season has been terrible. It's been a giant mess, no pun intended. And then you get to this point in the season where there's five weeks left. Now, I sort of understand where the Giants are coming from. Honestly, I really do. Because you do have three quarterbacks on the roster. You only have five weeks left. And you don't understand, not, not that you don't understand, but really Giants fans, I think even the Giants brass management, don't know what the direction is for this team. You can arguably say that with signing Brandon Marshall this year and with drafting Evan Ingram, that this year was kind of boom or bust for the Giants. It was either Super Bowl or bust with the way that they set up this team. They went for it. They went big. They added all these receivers to give to Eli Manning, and it just didn't work out. And you can blame it on injuries. You can blame it on Ben McAdoo. You can blame it on the offense. You can blame it on the players. Everybody is to blame here for the whole giant mess of a season. Now, going back to Eli Manning, though, I mean, I just, I'm confused as to where this is coming from. Is this just a Ben McAdoo decision? Is it a management decision? Because if it's coming from all the way from the owners at the top, I'm very surprised then. But if this is a Ben McAdoo thing, it kind of just sounds like Ben McAdoo is throwing Eli Manning under the bus. But again, we won't know because we're not behind closed doors. Here's the thing. With Eli Manning, again, I get it. You want to look at quarterbacks. However, if this is a scenario where it's week, let's say, 15, when it's the last three weeks of the season, and then you want to bench Eli Manning to look at Davis Webb, I totally understand that. Giants are going to have a top five pick this year. And there's a lot of good quarterbacks in this year's draft class that you're not going to get in the second and third round. They're going to go quickly in the first round because a lot of teams are going to need quarterbacks going into this year. There's going to be a lot of quarterbacks who are free agents. A lot of these teams going forward are going to need a franchise QB. So the Giants don't want to miss their chance because the Giants may not get a top five pick for another long time, whether Eli Manning's a quarterback or not next year. So I get it. You want to know if, say, hey, should we keep Davis Webb or should we get another quarterback? I totally understand that the Giants want to make a change. What I do have a problem with is how early in the season it is. Again, we're only five weeks left. I would prefer for the Giants to have it be three weeks left, maybe the last two weeks, and then you look at Davis Webb. But you're benching Eli Manning with five weeks left in the season for Geno Smith. You're benching Eli. I'll say it again. You're benching Eli Manning to look at Geno Smith. And now, Nick, you know I'm not a very big fan of Geno Smith. I think he's complete trash. I think he's garbage. I'll go bilingual. I think he's Basuda. I mean, Geno Smith, of all people, should not get a chance to be the quarterback of the New York Giants. I would take a toddler from that show on one of those Lifetime channels of Friday Night Tykes and put him as the quarterback instead of Geno Smith because that's how strongly I feel about that. And Geno Smith, on top of that, uh, and you know how much I don't like Jay Cutler here, Nick. First of all, I would say that I would honestly rather have Jay Cutler as a quarterback than Geno Smith, and that's how strongly I feel about Geno Smith. So at the end of the day, I don't have a problem with the Giants benching Eli Manning entirely. One, I think it's the wrong time in the season to do it. I think it's for the wrong person in terms of Geno Smith. I rather them bench him for Dana Davis Webb with the last three weeks than to see Geno Smith go out there and prove yet again that he's a terrible quarterback. You know, for me, it's right, on a business side. I understand it. it. This shows again. If we have ever had to question it, the NFL is a business at the end of the day. That's always been that kind of sentence. 
And it's almost like saying, we don't care who you are. It's a business, and we will get rid of you, and we will move on, and we will find someone yonder to replace you. But there's so many intangibles with this move. Like you said, Eli Manning has been the starting quarterback since 2004. 210 consecutive games. Second on the quarterback career list only to Brett Favre. Now, he's not going to pass Brett Favre. You're talking about having to go five more seasons in order to do so. But this is the guy everybody in New York knows. This is the face of the franchise of the New York Giants. This is the career leader in almost every Giant QB stat. And, I mean, other than Derek Jeter, since 2004, I don't think there's a bigger name in New York sports. So, this is really, as a, a Giants fan, I think people look and say, we now replace him with Geno Smith. The guy couldn't even make it on the Jets, which is almost like the little brother team to the Giants. So for Giant fans, I understand the entire thing. I understand the business perspective of it, but it's so weird to say. And I partly think we're, it, it gets escalated because of the fact that this might not have been handled correctly. You're talking about a franchise quarterback, and you're saying, hey, you're going to only start the first half, not the second half. Instead of saying a sentence of, if we're down 10, 14, 20-plus points in the game, or if we're up that, which they won't be, but if they are, <laughs> uh, then you take Eli out. And maybe it's, okay, now we get to like week 15, maybe we have to make a change so we can see... Davis Webb a little bit more, or we can see Geno Smith a little bit more than you. But Eli decides, no, that the, the career streak isn't uh, worth it, and he doesn't want to do that, and I think he didn't want to do that because the last thing he wants is a guy like Geno Smith or Davis Webb outplaying him in the same football game. So I think this was almost like a business move by Eli Manning to sit himself out, and I think that's a beneficial move on that part. But look at the Giants for a moment. And I understand the business move 100%. Like you said, they're 2-9. and nine. They're projected right now the third pick in the draft. And it could be a little bit higher depending on, again, how uh, the San Francisco 49ers do with Jimmy Garoppolo this week against the Chicago Bears. They could even go higher on the draft, possibly. And they could go maybe as low as six. There's only a game separates the three and eight teams between the Giants. The Giants looked around the NFL. Philip Rivers is getting older. Ben Roethlisberger was talking about retirement. Eli Manning is up in age as well. And these are all three guys that were drafted the same year. We constantly talked about, is this Tom Brady's last season? The NFL is getting younger in quarterbacks. And even the Giants division, Carlson Wentz has taken over. Dak Prescott won the NFC East division last season. Kirk Cousins isn't that old, but you don't even know which way the Redskins are going with that move. So I understand, again, they're, they're considering all options, especially with having a top pick with three top potential quarterbacks going. What I do question, though, is, okay, if you want to take a look at Geno Smith, and most likely Geno's not going to be the quarterback next season, or you want to take a look at Davis Webb, because that could be an interesting move, and if he becomes that big player that the Giants are going to consider instead of drafting a quarterback, then, all right. But 
the Giants are a good team. They're not the Browns. They're not the 49ers. They're not years away. And the 49ers may be better, but they're not years away. They're good enough where if you start next season with the same opening roster that they had this year, they're a potential playoff team. They just had a ton of injuries. They probably had a bad coach in Ben McAdoo, who I believe should get fired the moment Week 17's football game ends. Not the Monday. The moment that game ends, he should be fired. Did you say probably? Probably, <laughs> probably have a bad coach? No. They do have a bad coach. <laughs> they definitely have a bad coach, but he probably is getting fired. Oh, he should get fired. He if, should. He's not getting, if he's not getting fired, I'm starting a protest. There, there, there definitely should be a firing of Ben Matadu at the end of the season, which makes it even worse because if this is Ben Matadu's final move type of thing or big move, it's it's the end of an era on Eli Manning. And that's just completely wrong. When you talk about Ben Matadu has come in, he probably, and the combined move of Jerry Reese, had gotten rid of Tom Coughlin, and now this combined move is going to get rid of Eli Manning, and Giant fans are probably sitting there going, what the hell has happened? So, again, my big question will be, a year from now, does Eli Manning, or does a third pick in a draft, or does Davis West, uh, Davis Webb give you your best option to win football games. Because if it's still Eli Manning, they should have gone the route of Eli Manning still. Because in my mind, this is it. Eli Manning will not be a giant come next season if they're benching him right now. Uh, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you wouldn't be benching him. You wouldn't be looking at what you have in Davis Webb if if this was the case. I truly believe that Eli Manning is probably done as a giant, like you said. Yeah, if you were looking at what you had, you wouldn't really look at Geno Smith, even though it's a different team and it's fair to look at Geno. He's been the second-string quarterback this entire time, and that would be a right choice to do. It's sort of like you go straight to Davis Webb, and it would be when you're out of a football game and you're going to be out of five more football games, you take Eli Manning out and you put in Davis Webb. That, that would be the move to make to see what you have. But sitting out an entire half, that's just not presented right to Eli Manning. There, there, there was no respect done in my mind towards that. And Eli Manning just said no. Because he's, he's actually, I think, doing the right move. Because if one of these guys play better than Eli Manning in a half-to-half comparison, does any team want Eli Manning come next season? No. But if Eli Manning sits out, they may just take the history of Eli Manning and say, hey, he had a terrible team, a terrible offensive line, no run game, and nobody could stay healthy for him. I'm still willing to bet on Eli Manning. But if you take the two right now and they say, Geno had a better second half than Eli Manning did in the first half against the same Raiders defense, then yes, then no one's going to want Eli Manning because of those type of reasons. So I think Eli's playing it safer that way to try and be on a team that season. But the Giants... This is, in my mind, a complete disrespect to Eli Manning, and I don't think it's handled right by anybody in doing so. Yeah, I mean, the biggest problem I have is that the fact that they're they're putting in Geno Smith, that Geno Smith is getting a chance. And like you said, they didn't cut it on the Jets, and that's not an insult to the Jets. Back then, the Jets were bad, and if you couldn't be the QB of the Jets, then that's a problem. You know, you're taking over from Mark Sanchez. But also, I mean, we can all collectively agree that Geno Smith is a terrible quarterback. He's a backup. And you know what? When you're a backup, it's not always your right to start a game. 
or to come into a game because that's your job, the backup. Your, your job as a backup is basically to hold the clipboard and be ready in case there's an injury. So if the Giants, to me, if this was like a serious scenario where they really wanted to see what they had, Eli Manning would still be starting here against the Raiders. You go down to the wire till week three or week uh, till there's three weeks left or two weeks left, and you go straight to Davis Webb. I'm sorry, but there's no reason why about why Geno Smith should even be putting on cleats at this point of the season. Again, you want to see what you have. I can I can understand that because you, but you don't have anything in Geno Smith. Geno Smith is nothing. There's no valid excuse you can give me to say, oh, we want to check out what Geno has. He doesn't have anything. He's the backup. He couldn't cut it on the Jets. He couldn't cut it. He can't cut it here in New York and the Giants. I mean, the guy is a terrible quarterback. One hundred percent. But if Geno Smith throws, let's say, three dams for over three hundred plus yards and two touchdowns, then all of a sudden, Ben McAdoo saying, see, I have the quarterback I can work in my system. And then it's going to be a little weird. But I still think Ben McAdoo will get fired. But that, it's still one of those type of situations where you still have to see what you have. And it was a different team that that player was on. So I don't, I don't want to hold Geno Smith accountable for his time on the Jets. And I want to give him the benefit of doubt when he gets destroyed by Oakland. But... <laughs> <laughs> But until that point, yeah, still Sunday with my uh, positive influence in that point. And then on Sunday finishes, I'm pretty sure it will drop down to normal. Uh, just the one good part of this and uh, when it comes to Geno Smith is the Giants are the 32nd and final NFL team to start an African-American player at quarterback, which will be Geno Smith. Uh, long awaited in that factor, but... You know, at least that's the one positive that can come out of that. And Geno Smith will be also the first quarterback to start for both the Giants and the Jets. Uh, a rarity in and of itself, 100%. Uh, either way, no way we're seeing Eli coming back next season for the Giants. And it almost is feeling like that unless Davis Webb plays astronomically incredible, the Giants are drafting the quarterback come this draft. Do you see that happening as well? Yeah, definitely. And again, even if Davis Webb goes out there and has some solid performances, again, the Giants may not, even if you give a rookie QB this staff, this, you know, this core of wide receivers, this group of wide receivers, they can still make it work, especially when you're looking at guys like Josh Rosen or Sam Darnold uh, from USC. I mean, there's a lot of talented quarterbacks. And sometimes, even if you have a good QB in Davis Webb, Sometimes these are the kind of draftees that you just can't miss on, you know? And even if they're holding a clipboard for a year or two, even if Eli Manning, by the, some by some miracle, these kids are not going to, you know, they're not. it's not going to hurt for them to learn from Eli Manning and hold a clipboard behind a quarterback like that. But when you have this many talented quarterbacks in a draft class like you are going to have this year, um, sometimes you just can't pass on that. So whether the Giants need one or not, I think they are taking a quarterback. Yeah, this is one where... Unless Davis Webb plays phenomenal, and I think they do like Webb here, uh, they're still going to draft a quarterback at the end of the day. You're talking about having a possibility of franchise quarterback. You see the entire NFL around you, and it's just it's not one team that's hitting a that has a quarterback nowadays. It's every team almost has an extremely young quarterback that they have drafted over the last few years, and has become the starter whether it was from the opening ghetto or whether it was clipboard style. But they have a starter in that factor. And the only thing I think of it is if the Giants didn't have so much money attached to so many players, 
Jerry Reese would get fired as well. And this would be an entire thing where Ben McAdoo would be gone in my mind, Jerry Reese would be gone, Eli Manning unfortunately would be gone, and you start all over, a new GM, getting a new coach, getting a new quarterback, and building out an entire new system. But because of the fact that so many players are locked in for a long period of time, the only thing you need at the moment is a quarterback since you're getting rid of the franchise quarterback of the team already. And again, it's weird to me because it almost feels like the Cowboys. Did this move need to be made? When the Cowboys drafted Ezekiel Elliott, they weren't planning on getting a franchise quarterback, and they didn't plan on Dak Prescott. They drafted Dak, but they didn't certainly plan on Dak starting. He needed multiple injuries at quarterback to finally get the starting gig. What they looked at as, they have one missing need, a running back. Well, the Giants, you could say, have one or two missing needs, an offensive lineman or a running back. And they could have easily filled that position, come this draft in the top pick, take that spot, and roll with Eli Manning again. So I, I question that part of it, because I don't know if one of these young future QBs are going to be the better choice than Eli Manning, and you're playing for next season and when you can compete for a Super Bowl, or you're playing as you're trying to rebuild but not really rebuild and just try and replace a quarterback scenario here, so I don't love it at the end of the day because I still think Eli gives the Giants the best chance to win next year than those other options. Well, the Oakland Raiders and the Denver Broncos, well, Michael Trabtree and the Tweed Tlaib, they've had their problems all of last year. We saw it earlier in the season, and it just got right into it very early. I think, like, what, three minutes into the football game, both of these players were ejected for fighting, and then they still refort when they finally separated the two players. An original two-game suspension was reduced down to one game, and, Jose, this season has been an unprecedented amount of fights. This year, it's it's rare we see one a season, and we have had multiple fights this year on a consistent base, which is, I think, a problem for the NFL on that standpoint. But let's get that opinion on you, as well as, did the NFL get it right? Was the one game a large enough suspension for these players? I feel like the NFL is going to find a correlation between the new touchdown dances and the amount of fights that happened in the NFL this year. And then we're going to go back to the boring touchdown celebrations. No, but I mean, in all seriousness, I don't understand why this suspension was reduced for either one of them. I mean, I think two games is a little bit of a light suspension. These guys deserve to be suspended for two games and be hit with a very, very hard fine. Not only do you fight, like you said, what, a minute into the ball game? I mean, did you guys even get to line up across each other yet? I mean, they started fighting from the get-go. And then on top of that, they started fighting again towards the end zone when I don't think anybody knew they were back there. I mean, you're talking about fighting, getting separated, and then rejoining the fight again, the same two players going at it again. It was a big ruckus. Again, it, it, it puts other players in danger. Um, doesn't set a good example for the younger, younger athletes watching out there, the little kids out there and stuff like that. Hey, I understand football is a game. It can get competitive. You know, the 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 extra, you know, frustration. Both of these teams having bad seasons probably doesn't help. These two guys don't like each other to begin with. It goes back to last year. I mean, I wouldn't like it if somebody ripped off my chain either. 
because you don't know if that chain had any significance to Michael Crabtree. So, you know, a lot of that stuff plays into that. So I understand, you know, frustration sometimes gets the best of you, but that fight cannot happen. I mean, that is too big of a fight. That's bigger than what happened with AJ Green and Jalen Ramsey. I mean, when fists actually start flying and you have to be separated and go out again, I'm sorry, you need to serve a heavy fine for that. So, yeah, they're going to get fined thousands of dollars or millions of dollars, whatever. But to reduce it from two games to one, I'm not understanding why it was reduced. I think both of them deserve to have a two-game suspension, maybe even more. But I definitely didn't think it should have been reduced. Yeah, normally when it comes to fights, the ejection is its own suspension. I think that's a big part of why we saw A.J. Green and Jalen Ramsey. They didn't get suspended compared to like a Mike Evans when he got suspended. But this is in a total another situation where you separate the two players and it's almost like at, at that point in like hockey you separate the two players okay you go to respected penalty boxes and it's over for them it wasn't they went right back at it and we saw immediately from the beginning Michael Trabtree wanted to fight I, I think there was reports he taped his chain to himself it was it's silly in the get-go of what's going on. He immediately started when the football game began with a different player than Chris Harris, and then it resulted in you knew it was just going to happen that the two, Tweeb uh, uh, Tlaib and Michael Chabtree, were going to get at it at some point, and it didn't take long from that. I don't understand why it needed to be reduced. I don't think one game is a large enough suspension especially when you're talking about how many fights you've seen this year, I almost feel like that would have been sending a bigger message. Where it's like, okay, now we really have to buckle down because we're not just seeing this occasionally anymore or once. It's, it's coming more often than ties. So it's a little bit weird in my mind. Uh, and I, I think they should have kept it too at the end of the day. And I think... If the NFL was going to take a hard stance on not reducing it and having the two players fight to see if they were going to get the suspension reduced, I think they would have lost. And it would have just served a two-game suspension. And the NFL would have just taken another foot and said, hey, we have to put a little more into this because there are too many fights occurring during these games. And it's, it's getting bad. Yeah, I mean, the NFL has always been notoriously bad at setting suspensions. I mean, yeah. you can still have and all that stuff. I mean, but basically, a one-game suspension, you're talking about basically a finger wag, basically telling them, hey, guys, don't do it again now when we go out there next week or whenever you guys see each other again, because that's exactly what's going to happen. It's like you said, it's all about putting your foot down, setting the precedence, because guess what? You never know. One week, we might have two people get in a fight, and it might be suspended eight games because of Roger Goodell's wrongdoing with all the other suspensions that he mishandled. I mean, you just never know when it comes to the NFL these days with the suspensions. Yeah, and again, like, a great example in my mind is Bengals and Jaguars. They may see each other once a year at most. It's highly unlikely AJ Green and Jalen Ramsey are going to get back at it. But two division rivals? Yeah, they're going to see each other twice, and already we saw the issues on the first time. And constantly even last season and it could result again into next year so it, it has to be shown a little bit more and I think also on a Michael Tram- on a Michael Crabtree stance and on a Raiders football stance he made it more about him than the football team when you're 
trying to fight for a playoff spot in the division only, and you're getting thrown out of a football game minutes in, you're not putting your team ahead of yourself. You're not putting yourself in a great situation. You're, you are throwing everything out the window. And I think this has been a Raiders issue all year long that Chet Del Rio has had to face when it came to guys like Marshawn Lynch. And we thought it was just Marshawn, and now it's like it's a lot more than that as well. So I think there's a lot of issues on a, Ra- a Raiders standpoint when it comes to the players, which is they're just not putting it in anywhere but themselves over the team. And I think that stands a big part for Michael Crabtree in going out and fighting three minutes into a football game. Speaking about the NFL, and let's look at two of the best teams right now. The Eagles are 10-1, and having won nine straight games. And the Patriots are 9-2, and having won seven straight games. And a lot of talk right now about how these two teams are the Super Bowl favorites and are going to meet in the Super Bowl, and there's nobody better than them. Jose, are these the two best teams in the NFL right now? Well, I mean, stats don't lie. I mean, that's what I learned a long time ago. And you can try and make all the excuses you want about the Philadelphia Eagles. I mean, they're a team that still doesn't get a lot of the respect sometimes. But, yeah, I think these two teams are the best in the NFL right now. I mean, the Patriots speak for themselves. I think even if the Patriots had a bad record, you would still call them one of the best teams in the NFL because of that coach-slash-quarterback combo. And then when you look at the NFC, it's been a wild ride. Uh, It's like, I mean, I believe Fox drew up a stat the other day. The four division leaders didn't even make the playoffs last year. In the NFC, forefront, and the Eagles have been one of the more consistent teams in the NFC, doing it through Carson Wentz, doing it through that run game. It seems like it doesn't matter who's back there in the backfield; they're getting it done with the run game. Uh, and then again, Carson Wentz's you know fantastic season has really put the Eagles at the front. So yeah, I'm not afraid to say that the Patriots and the Eagles not only are they Super Bowl favorites in my mind, and you, you could be looking at the Super Bowl matchup right there between the top two teams. I mean, it should be them two at the end, honestly. But I think these two teams are the best in the NFL right now. Yeah, one of the things that I think stand out between the Eagles and the Patriots than anybody else is you never hear that they're playing down to their opponent. The Eagles played the Bears last week. They beat them 31-3. to Just pure domination in the football game. Did not let them in at any point. Only allowed, I think, 100, a little bit over 100 yards in the entire game. Mitchell Trubisky couldn't do anything. The Bears' offense could not get anything done. The Eagles had an easy win. What did the Patriots do against the Miami Dolphins? They beat them by over 17. They scored over 30 against the Dolphins, and the Dolphins only scored a late touchdown to make it a little bit closer in that standpoint. But for the most part, the Patriots ran away with that football team, beating up the Dolphins. Yeah, I mean, Nick, and you said it. You know, you said that over here at they're playing down to their team. But honestly, one of the things about the Patriots and the Eagles is that you don't hear anything about them at all. And honestly, that's just that's been the Patriots' auto basically all these past couple of years. They play cool, calm, and collective football. You never hear anything about you know about Tom Brady, you know, and the, the struggles that they're going through. They go out there and they play the game. You look at the Philadelphia Eagles. This team is as loose as loose as ever. I mean, no one's worrying on this team. They know they're the best. That are right there. They have the right mixture of confidence, but not confusing it with cockiness that it's costing them football games. These two teams are just playing really, really loose football right now. They're having fun, and when you face teams like that, those are the most dangerous teams. The one that knows that they're good, and they know they're going to put out a good performance, and you're not hearing anything about them in terms of problems and stuff like that, these two teams are really cool, calm, and collective, which is what you need in terms of being a good player in this league. 
And when the team is feeling that way and nothing is going wrong, basically, for these two teams, that's a dangerous team to want to face. Yeah, in my mind right now, I know there's so many good NFC teams, and it's always a changing factor. It's, it's almost a revolving door. One year it's the Packers. One year it's it's the Seahawks for a couple of years. Okay, now it's Carolina. Nope, no longer Carolina. We're going Atlanta. Nope, no, no longer Atlanta. It's Philadelphia. It, it is a revolving door in the NFC, a consistency. Look at the AFC, and there was only three quarterbacks. Other than Joe Flacco who made it to the Super Bowl once, only three quarterbacks have been to the Super Bowl since, I think, like 2000. And it's Tom Brady, Patton Manning, Ben Roethlisberger. So the AFC has stayed very consistent on just one or two teams just being there. And while the NFC just is like, okay, it's our turn now, it's our turn now, and it's just constantly along that line. So I think it's always that consistent factor that I always trust into the Patriots. And like you said, Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, this is still a team that didn't need Gronkowski last year. Doesn't have Julian Edelman this season, and it don't. They don't miss a single beat at all. The Eagles have been playing phenomenal all year long. I expect them to play great against Seattle. And yes, there's a couple teams that I think, like the Steelers, the Minnesota Vikings, that are both of them nine and two. Both of them should be considered as high threats to get to the Super Bowl as well. But right now, there is just two teams that are pure dominating over everyone else in the NFC South. We're talking about one of the tighter divisions for a lot of great records among football teams. The Saints are eight and three. The Panthers are eight and three, and the Falcons are seven and four right now. And when you look at it a little bit of who they play the rest of the season, Saints four out of their five games are division games, and two of them will be against the Falcons. The Panthers are going to play three division games remaining, one against each team. While the Falcons again, they're another one that has four division games and. Of course, two of them against the Saints. So a lot of this is going to come down to, could be matchup-wise, we have the Saints playing the Falcons this week. We'll talk a little bit more about that game a little bit uh, further into the podcast. But, Jose, this is one of the extremely tight division races where we're seeing all three of these teams currently in a playoff spot with the Seahawks at 7-4 just missing out. So, one, do you see all three of these teams making the playoffs and who do you have really going on top of this division with these three teams playing each other? Well, I mean, it's been a fantastic, you know, season for all three of these teams. And actually really disappointing that Tampa Bay has had such a bad year because you expected Tampa Bay to be in the mix this year. And imagine if they would have been having somewhat of a decent season. This would have been an even more wild division. You're talking about four teams for three spots, essentially. But now you got three teams three spots, pretty much only one of them being guaranteed, which is a division, because you don't know if the other two are going to end up in your hands or not. But all three of these teams kind of control their own destiny. If they keep winning, they'll be in perfect a perfect spot to try and get their playoff spot. I'm going to answer the question first about if we're going to see three teams in this, and I'm going to answer no to that. Not because I don't believe in any of these three teams. I think all three teams can definitely make the playoffs. I think the Saints deserve a tremendous amount of credit for what they've been doing this year. I mean, me and you both on this podcast – did not think of the Saints highly when the season started. Remember, we always said, hey, Drew Brees is going to throw out 50 points and the Saints are going to allow 50 points. I think their defense has done a tremendous job this year of really stepping up, even when Drew Brees wasn't at their best. They've won a handful of games just based off their defensive alone. And Drew Brees, when he hasn't been himself, the defense is there to pick him up. A couple weeks, the defense hasn't been showing up. Drew Brees has been there to pick up the Saints. So the Saints deserve a tremendous amount of credit for what they've been doing. 
Panthers are credit for what they're doing, too. Because you're looking at a team that traded their top wide receiver in Kelvin Benjamin. They traded him for what? Fourth round draft pick? I mean, they traded him for a bag of peanuts, basically. And they're still doing their thing with the run game, with their defense, with the confidence and swagger that that Panthers team have when it comes to down the playoff stretch, this team comes alive. And then you have the Falcons, who we were worrying about earlier in the year because, you know, did they have an NFC championship hangover because they weren't playing like themselves. And, you know, they were struggling being of the year as well, too. So are all three teams going to make it? I'm going to say no. I think definitely two of them will. I think it's very unlikely, especially with the amount of divisional games left that they have against each other. One of these teams is going to end up biting the bullet and losing a couple of those divisional games. Obviously, somebody has to lose. And I think you still have a Seahawks team where, yeah, they have a lot of injuries on defense. Their defense is not that good as it has been in the past. But Russell Wilson knows what to do when it comes down to stretch of December into these last couple of weeks. Pete Carroll knows what to do. The Seahawks are that team that they come in through the clutch and they know exactly what they have to do to try and sneak into the playoffs. So do all three NFC uh, South teams make it? No. I can see two of them making it. Now, who's going to win the division is the answer. And I feel kind of cheap saying this, but I'm at the roll with the Atlanta Falcons. I don't know. Last week's game, to watch Julio Jones have that monster game. And I know it's not going to happen every week, but you're looking at the fans and telling yourself, uh-oh, I think this team just woke up. And it's, what, week 15? And this team has been in it all year long. But you look at the Falcons and you're saying... I think this team's going to look really scary now these last couple of weeks. I think the Falcons are ready to roll. I just don't trust the Saints. Again, give them credit for what they've done. But can they keep doing it against divisional games like the Panthers, like the Falcons? You know, those teams have been there, done that. I trust the the Panthers just a little bit more than the Saints. I can see the Panthers making it in a wild card spot because, again, they don't have too many options on offense outside of their run game. I mean, you have Funches, but really Cam Newton doesn't have many targets to throw to. They really have to rely on that defense. But I look at the Saints and I just I look at the Saints and I say I can't trust them. So I don't think all three teams will make it, and I think the Falcons will win the South while the Panthers slide in for a wild card spot. So you have the Saints possibly not in the uh, the risk situation. Uh, so I, I'm a lot of the opposite. So I do think all three teams can make the playoffs, and yes, it's not going to be easy when you say that when I think that sentence, and especially when. So many of these teams play each other, and it's going to result in one of these teams losing, and it's going to affect the standings, and that's going to be a a factor onto it. But, you know, you look at it and say, I don't trust the Seattle Seahawks. And they're 7-4. and four. They're sitting on the outside, but you look at the schedule, Philadelphia, then Jacksonville on the road, and, and then the Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles Rams, and... And there's just not a lot of health on Seattle that makes me not, that almost pushes me to believe, yes, three teams can make it from this division because of the fact that I don't think Seattle can last long term health wise. Uh, as far as the division goes, the, the team I don't trust is the Carolina Panthers. You look at them and it's like they barely got through against the Jets. They blew out the Dolphins, but the Dolphins haven't been that great of a team uh, throughout the season. Uh, they've had a couple of good division wins against the Buccaneers, against the Atlanta Falcons. It was close, but it's, they've won four in a row, not against the greatest of teams. I, I really like the Saints to take this division. Kamara and Mark Ingram, and Mark Ingram just surprisingly has been phenomenal this year. Uh, they are running the ball with plenty of success, and we saw 
that they fell behind against the Rams, and that threw off their game. But they've been mainly a run team, but when they've needed to go to the pass, it's been fine. We see the old Drew Brees. It put them right back in a football game against the Washington Redskins in the game. Normally, you're going to lose when you're down, what, 16 in the fourth quarter, and they're still coming back from that. So I really like the Saints and how they look, and I think they can easily beat up against teams in their division with a lot of division games left. I think that's going to push the Saints far, and it's more of just not trusting the teams on the outside of the playoffs looking in, and that can be a big reason why I think all three of these teams can make the playoffs, but certainly so. With so many division games left, it's going to result in some of these teams losing, and all it takes is just two quick losses and it could be the difference maker on any one of these teams. On the other side, in the AFC, the AFC West, although not the same records, uh, it is still a three-dog race in that division. The Chiefs currently lead that division at 6-5, and five, whereas the Raiders and Chargers both sit at 5-6. and six, And it, A very surprising note, when you look at the Chiefs, they've lost five of their last six games. The, Ra- the Chargers started the season 0-4, and, and originally, this division started with the Raiders, the Broncos, and the Chiefs starting all 2-0, and and now it's basically, eh, maybe 500 gets you to the division at this point. So, Jose, realistically, which one of these teams really has a shot? I mean, it's hard to say. They've all have been playing so awful as of late. Too, and spent, like, I mean, no, seriously. I mean, like, like the Kansas City Chiefs this year really are this year's version of the Vikings. Remember the Vikings last year? They were flying, you know, flying high, 5-0. and Then they lost Sam Bradford with an injury, and then they went downhill from there. The same thing is happening with the Chiefs, except there's really no injuries to document here. You know, it's just this is a team that's been figured out by other teams. You know, Kareem Hunt was having such great success. Until teams, you know, basically expose them and say, okay. And it's really, honestly, these teams, like you said, they all got off to a 2-0 start, except for the Chargers. They got off to a bad start. But honestly, the Chiefs are the team that have no excuse. I mean, this division was putrid for the last couple of weeks. And the Chiefs have had a lot of winnable games go through their fingertips. And, and they lost a lot of those games. And, and the Chiefs could be sitting at a, a really big, better record here with a nice cushion for themselves in the West, and now you're finding it coming down to the last couple of weeks, I honestly think whoever gets this division will have a losing record. A couple of years ago, we saw the Texans getting with a 7-9 and nine record. I truly believe that you might see the same thing here again this, this year with the AFC West, which is funny because last year, Nick, the AFC West was arguably one of the best divisions in football last year with all three of those teams potentially making the playoffs in the Chiefs, Broncos, and the Raiders. They all had a shot last year. So, it's funny how things turn, and then you can't even count out San Diego either with the way Phillip Rivers looked turning back the clock on Thanksgiving Day. And I think a lot of that has to deal with the fact that they were facing a bad Cowboys team now that's still trying to learn how to play without Ezekiel Elliott. But if these teams continue to look bad, don't count out San Diego either. I mean, if you're asking me who's going to end up winning this division, I, I really don't know. You know, I'm pretty old here. I'm rolling with the San Diego Chargers, Nick. I think the San Diego Chargers are going to make the playoffs. Yeah, it's amazing when we talked about the beginning of the year. The Chiefs were 5-0. and They were looking like one of the top teams in the AFC. It was a three-dog race. And now, now we don't even know if the Chiefs are going to make the playoffs. And taking the hot team is the Chargers. 
you look at it and say, the Chiefs have lost five out of the last six games. They have looked absolutely terrible, and they're playing the Jets this week in what's uh, going to have to be almost a must-win game for the Chiefs. The, I, I like the Chargers schedule. The Chargers schedule is very weak, where all three of these teams are going to face each other once at the remainder of the season, and I, you take the hot team. The defense looks strong. It only looks like it's getting better as late. Yeah, it helps when you only had to face Nathan Peterman and Dak Prescott without Ezekiel Elliott, and now you're going to face the Cleveland Browns. So, yeah, the Chargers' defense will look phenomenal, especially if you're a fantasy football fan. But overall, I'm still taking the Chargers. Wins are wins at the end of the day, no matter who you verse. And if I'm going to take any team, I'll take the team that's hot right now, which offense looks like it's rolling well. They're getting Keen Allen involved in football teams a lot more now than in the beginning of the season. This is a guy that was phenomenal two years ago when he was healthy until he got hurt. And then last season, he missed all of the last year. And it just seemed like he wasn't getting involved enough. These And now, now he's averaging tons of targets, tons of receptions. They're going almost with like a two-dot style at running back with Melvin Gordon, which again hurts me as I have Gordon and have to acquire some handcuff situations. But it's one of the scenarios where I, I believe in a team that started 0-4 to make the playoffs. That's where we're at right now. And I think that's insane to say. But that's the fun at football at the end of the day. The Chargers still have a chance. By the way, should we ignore the fact that we probably both called them San Diego in this statement and this, uh, oh, this segment? I did not even realize it's one of those situations. It's it's tough. But how to- about that? This, play one one team. They have potentially two playoff teams in the mix for the city of Los Angeles in football, and they still can't get a fan base. I, I think the Rams are starting to get a fan base going, but the Chargers. I mean, yeah, I truly believe it's a stadium thing. I think no one wants to go to those stadiums to see. The Chargers or the Rams. I honestly think the Chargers are going to fall victim to the fact that they got there a year later. I think when you're saying, when you're telling a new fan base, hey, here are some new teams, they're going to flock to whoever comes first. And especially since the Rams are having a more dominant season, there's going to be more LA Rams fans than they are LA Chargers, honestly. I think it was a bad move in general just to move the Chargers over. But that could be a whole discussion for another day, honestly. And good catch on the San Diego part. I do apologize for that one. And one of the other factors I saw earlier in the year. I think the uh, Chargers were charging, uh, you know, around. No pun intended. Uh, yeah, <laughs> said it immediately and realized a uh, hundred dollars for parking for a game. Not even to get into the game, but a hundred dollars just to park. Bored? <laughs> uh, Who do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> like that's uh, like astronomical and out of control in that aspect. And yeah, you're gonna struggle to get fans when it's yeah, it's a hundred dollars for me to just park my car and not even to get into the stadium. Uh, there's a lot to go with that. And then there's even people that are like that are the San Diego Charger fans. And I know I'm saying it that way. And then. They are turned off by the fact that they did move. And you lose a lot of fan bases the moment you come to Los Angeles and the moment you change your name and the moment you leave your crowd. So there's a lot of different problems with that scenario. But I think right now, if you can win that division, that could turn some heads. That could change it to the right style, though. Still might not get more fans than the Rams or a USC football game or something along that line. But... (laughs) 
you, you'll have a better better opportunities along the way. Winning cures everything at the end of the day. We see it countless times in baseball. Um, you saw it countless times in hockey, too. I mean, you can't say that LA Kings were one of the best franchises until recent memory, really, when they started winning actual games and then they won the Stanley Cup. So, Yeah, well, winning is a cure at the end of the day. While well, losing is a uh, fun disease for a lot of teams. <laughs> Cleveland. Yeah, I was going to say, just ask Cleveland. <laughs> not, not the Indians or the Cavs, but the, uh, the other one with the bats. Uh, so, Jose, I want to run through a couple really great games that I think that are coming on this week and to see who you have in these games and a couple reasons on why you have th- this team winning. So, we'll start off with, we talked about the NFC South. Well, the New Orleans Saints and the Carolina play- Panthers play each other this week, both teams 8-3. and three. Obviously, division implications on the line for these teams. Saints winning the first game earlier this year against the Panthers. Who do you have in this one? Yeah, I mean, give me the Panthers in this one. Again, I just I don't trust the Saints. I can't fully say I have full confidence in them. Again, give credit to that team. That defense has been spectacular this season. But, you know, they were flying high on that nine-game or eight-game win streak. I forgot how much it was exactly. I believe it was an eight-game eight, win streak that was games. snapped. Yeah, it was snapped last week against the Rams. Um, so I think they're still going to feel the effect of that. And the Panthers are hot. And like you said, a win is a win at the end of the day. And yeah, the Panthers haven't been beating great teams, but they are on a roll. And Luke Keekley looked phenomenal against the Jets. Again, not saying much because it's still against the Jets. No disrespect to the Jets. But Luke Keekley looked like a monster. And if that guy looks like a monster, and if that guy is going, and if that guy is pumping up the entire defense, you got to be careful with that Panthers defense. Don't sleep on them. Because, yeah, Cam Newton may not be chucking the ball around 20 times a game, and he may not have his top targets in terms of the receiving game, but that defense alone can win the Panthers some ball games. I just don't trust the Saints. By the way, Mark Ingram having a phenomenal year. Coincidence is his contract year. He's a free agent at the end of the year. I'm not going to mention that now. But, uh, yeah, give me the Panthers in that one. I, I just can't try. I can't, I can't look with a straight face and say the Saints are going to make the playoffs until I actually see it. So I certainly will take the opposite on this one. And this is one of those rare moments where we really are opposite on something. A lot of times we see eye-to-eye when it comes to either football or baseball. But this is one where I'm taking the Saints. The home team, New Orleans, the, the better team in my mind. I like their run game style. I think when you look at it and say, okay, they lost to the Los Angeles Rams. The Rams, I think, had to win that game more than the Saints had to win that game. And they fell behind real early. They fell behind 10 nothing. They were coming back in, the, in that game. But as the game progressed, they were still down two scores. It took a lot of their chances to run the football out of the game, and I don't see that happening against the Carolina Panthers. I just, as much as I like Devin Funches, as much as uh, Cam Newton can take over a football game, he really hasn't this season. And I really haven't seen what I wanted to see out of Jonathan Stewart, out of Cam Newton rushing the football, and, and Christian McCaffrey's looked good. But I don't think they get him involved nearly enough as they should. I think you see him more when it comes to red zone situations or a check down passes. But now, Cam, this is a game where we're looking at it last week where we just said a win's a win. But it was an ugly win against the Jets. They were close against the Jets the entire way through. And it came to simply a a punt return and a fumble return for a touchdown that broke that game open for the Panthers to win the game. So, no, I'm not 
sold on the Panthers 100%. I do think overall they are the worst team out of those three teams in the division when it comes to the Saints, Panthers, and the Falcons. And I really like the Saints in this one to win coming off a loss. And I think that's also a bit questionable moment. How do you respond after a loss after you've won eight in a row? So that to me is another interesting factor. And I like the Saints in this one. Jose, the Vikings 9-2 and two, taking on the Atlanta Falcons. I know we've talked a lot about the NFC South. But there's another great game for the Falcons. And another real playoff implications, especially when... The Seahawks are sitting right behind at 7-4 and four as well. So can the Falcons get the home win against the Vikings this week? Yeah, I mean, I have Atlanta winning that game. Um, I mean, yeah, the Vikings are tough, and to give them credit, 9-2. and two, They have taken full advantage of the Packers being bad this year. Um, but that's not to say that the Vikings don't deserve the credit, too. I mean, Case Keenum has done a phenomenal job at the QB position with the Bradford injury. Knowing Teddy Bridgewater is technically activated, but obviously he's not going to start because he just doesn't have the reps in. And why would you mess with a good thing? I mean, Keenum is playing really well right now for the Vikings. But give me the Falcons in this one. They had a tremendous game last week. Julio Jones erupted um, for a huge amount of stats on his sheet. If you're a fantasy football fan, congrats if you have him. If you were facing him, I'm sorry. But I think there's something about this Falcons team, and I mentioned it before. You look at them and you're saying... You know, you say to yourself, this team, I think they're ready to actually take off. You know, no pun intended. They're ready to rise up or whatever they say for the Falcons. And this is a team that's been good all year long, but they haven't looked like they played themselves. And again, if that's how they're going to look going forward, when it comes down to crunch time, it's in their home building, it's in their dome, whatever, or the new stadium. I like the Falcons in this matchup against the Vikings just because I think they're hot right now. And I always go with the high, I always tend to go with the hotter hand. Um, I think the Falcons are going to come here and, and take on the Vikings and get a win. Yeah, I I like the Falcons overall as a team. I, offensively, I think they're really starting to click. Devontae Freeman is coming back this week. I think that could be a difference maker for the team long term. To have that two running back combo, we saw Coleman not really getting a lot of receptions in that game last week that they were able to pick up the win. He was mainly running the football. And that's going to change when you can actually check it down to Coleman, get your running bats involved a little bit more, something we saw a lot last season by the Atlanta Falcons. However, this is a Vikings team that has just simply been incredible. Wide receivers, Adam Thielen, Stefan Dids have been amazing this year, especially Thielen. And you're talking about doing it with a third-string quarterback in Honestly, I think we have to stop using those words to describe Case Keenum because he's nowhere near playing like a third-string quarterback. He is playing phenomenal this year. He's been spectacular, more than what anybody could have ever expected. And this is still a Vikings defense that is one of the best in the NFL. And if there's a, a defense that could stop Atlanta in a road matchup, it's certainly the Vikings. I like the Vikings in this game. They'll continue to win in my mind, and they should be able to get to ten and two while pushing the Falcons to seven and five. So two already that we've had opposites on. A little surprise going on for us. Makes it for better, for better entertainment, anyways. Yeah, I think we might have to get like a side bet going on some of these things just for fun. See if anybody can go better then. Uh, but staying with it for a moment, uh, the Eagles versus the Seahawks. Currently, the Eagle, uh, Seahawks 7-4 and four, sitting on the outside of the playoffs, hosting the 10-1 and one Eagles. Jose, who do you have in this one? 
I'm taking Philadelphia in this one. Usually I like the Seahawks, especially this time of year. Like I said before, I think Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson, they know how to win football games unless, of course, you're the uh, they don't win the football game, but all you know, all jokes aside, I mean, they know how to win when it comes to this time of year. But you're facing again one of the hottest teams in football, one of the loosest teams in football. This Eagles team is looking really scary. I don't think they can be stopped. And then you add the fact that Sherman's not available. They have a couple of other injuries on the defense. There's no reason I think Carson Wentz shouldn't come into Seattle and really be able to carve up this defense. Their running game may not be as strong, even though the Seahawks have been giving up an insane amount of rushing yards. Um, but I expect Carson Wentz to be able to go in there and be able to throw the ball downfield to anybody he wants to. I'm taking the Eagles over the Seahawks. Yeah, this one we're going to have an easy advance on. I have the Philadelphia Eagles. Russell Wilson is nearly 85% of the Seahawks' yards from scrimmage. He is. They have no run game. He is resulting in running the football, passing the football. And it's amazing some of the moves he's got to do just to try and get the Seahawks some positive yards. It's going to be extremely tough to believe in that matchup against an Eagles defense. I really like this being as a true test in a playoff environment situation for the Eagles and how they handle it. We see how they handle when they play teams that are like the Bears. They do not play down to their opponents. They go straight at them consistently. I expect the same thing for the Eagles to bring against the Seahawks in this road matchup. And uh, it's tough like you said Richard Sherman out Cam Chancellor out this defense is not what it's been uh, of the last few years they are not healthy this year it's really hard for me to believe in the Seahawks long term or even in just a game against a good offense when you consider how many defensive injuries the Seahawks have I have the Eagles winning this one and they move to the ele- 10 straight wins at that point and Lastly, of these matchups, the Sits and Five Lions take on the Sits and Five Ravens. I know in our last podcast we spoke about the Sits seat on the AFC and a potential team that we could have making the playoffs when the Bills were still holding that playoff spot when they were starting Nathan Peterman. Yeah, that worked out great for them. Uh, but the Ravens currently sitting at that Sits seed. I had the Ravens making the playoffs instead of the Bills in that scenario. Uh, do who do you have winning this game? Give me the Detroit Lions in this one. And that's very surprising because I feel like the Lions um, tend to choke the, the later it gets in the year. Uh, I think Matthew Stafford's a phenomenal quarterback. I think the Lions are a better team this year than they've been in the past. But I just don't see them. I don't think the Lions are going to make it towards the end of the year. But this is a matchup that they should be able to win. I don't know. There's something about the Ravens where they showed me something when they won on Monday night. But then again, it was still against a Texans team where Tom Savage played terrible this is still a team that has a great defense, but on the offensive side, Joe Flacco is having a bad year. Why? Because Joe Flacco doesn't have the targets to throw to. We thought Jeremy Macklin was going to be a good fit for uh, Joe Flacco and the Ravens. Hasn't been so much so. Uh, the Ravens are just a little bit too flat in my eyes to go out there and win this game. A lot of pressure on the Ravens and the Lions because, of course, like we said, they're both kind of chasing after that last spot available on each the AFC and the NFC in their respective sides. Um, but give me the Lions in this one. I just think Matthew Stafford and the Lions are just a better team overall than the Ravens. Um, so they should be with this ballgame. I like the Ravens on this one, and I'm going to go a little bit more with my heart at the end of the day when it comes to the Ravens. Uh, Alex Collins dealing with some calf soreness, but I think he should be good to go come game time. 
I've been a big fan of how he's been playing so far as the running back for the Ravens. Like you said, the offense for the Ravens has been flat. There's no doubt about that. But the Ravens' defense, in my mind, is better than the Detroit Lions' defense. A home game for the Ravens. I think that can result in a win. And it's just one of those situations where I think the Ravens, when it steps up to those bigger games and that playoff environment situation, I think Joe Flacco usually takes it to a little bit more of a next level, and there's a lot of control and just calmness out of Joe Flacco. And I expect that type of situation in this football game, in one of those games where they can pull away from the pack and get this win. So I have the Ravens winning this one. I'm, I'm going with a lot more of my heart in this one, but I, I certainly believe in the Ravens' defense. I was a, on, on a final note for our episode 14 podcast, we've talked a lot about the Cowboys through these first couple episodes and throughout the entire NFL season, on, especially because of the Zeke suspension when it was possibly going to start in the beginning of the year, uh, then it, it was going to be possibly a couple of weeks into the season, and finally he did finally get suspended. But we saw after three games how lost the Cowboys are without Zeke and how bad Dak Prescott has been without Zeke. But a team we haven't spoken about when it comes to tight, a scenario like this is the Green Bay Packers. They're one in five without Aaron Rodgers, and I am including the game against the Vikings. Even if I don't include that, we're still looking at a one in four team without Aaron Rodgers, and a team that really looks lost and honestly terrible without Aaron Rodgers. And it doesn't seem like they have any pieces around him, and it's just been Rodgers this entire time that has made the Packers look good or decent at best at times. So, Jose, do the Packers, should there be a lot of concern when it comes to Packer fans? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I mean, it's not a bad thing to have a quarterback that can do it all, right? Everybody wants that kind of quarterback. You want to know that your quarterback can throw it anywhere and the fact that they can win football games. But when that guy goes down, literally, your season is over. And it's Tom Brady goes missing. Thing. They're still winning ball games because of, of Bill Belichick. You know, other teams, their star QB goes down. They're still winning ball games because of the run game or because of the defense. The Packers' defense is atrocious. The run game is non-existent, and even the receivers, the receivers, as good as they are, and I like Jordy Nelson, I like Randall Cobb, I like this group of guys, but they've proven that they may not even be that good of you know a wide receiver because they don't have Aaron Rodgers. It's looking more and more now like that we can confirm this. We probably already knew it. Well, we can confirm that the Packers are nothing without Aaron Rodgers and that, indeed, Aaron Rodgers is the one that makes these receivers look good, honestly. And again, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to have that quarterback that can do that for you. But when this guy goes down, you don't have anything else. And so if you're the Packers going into the offseason, let's get a run game going. Get somebody else. That way, Aaron Rodgers, if he does go down or does he, if he does have to miss some time, you can be able to hand the ball back and still be able to run an efficient game plan. Because without Aaron Rodgers, this Packers team is complete nothing. Yeah, this is this is, should be major concern. You look at it, and only one guy is playing good, and that's Devontae Adams. Uh, as far as anything else, there is nothing. We always thought it was like, you know, the defense looks pretty good, even if it doesn't have its straight pieces. Clay Matthews take care of it. It's really not been that case. The the Packers' defense has not been good at all, and a part of it is because 
the Packers offense can't stay on the field. They can't force themselves to stop anything. It is bad right now. And it almost reminds me of the Indianapolis Colts. And I'm going to give the Packers a little bit more of a better edge than the Indianapolis Colts. But this is a team that just, it reminds me of nothing is there except a great quarterback. And that's all I see at times. You you have a couple good wide receivers there. You have a little bit of a piece or two. But there's no run game. Aaron Rodgers has been the run game for this team for the last, what, three years? There's no ability on this team right now. And I think you're really going to have to see the Packers try and do what the Indianapolis Colts did and reamp this entire roster. They made over 20 sits out of the 53 roster spot changes. I'm not saying you have to go that drastic, but you have to consider that there's a lot more than one or two pieces you need to add, or there's a lot more than just, okay, this is our only problem, because it just looks like everywhere is a problem when it comes to the Green Bay Packers, except for Aaron Rodgers. Any thing you want to add on that one before we jump into beer back? I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's just not much to say, like when it comes to that kind of stuff, at least with the Cowboys, you can kind of dissect it and say, well, you know, give the Cowboys some time. They're still learning how to play without Ezekiel Elliott, you know, showing leads down on defense as well, too. So that factors in. But there's really no excuse for the Packers here, except that Aaron Rodgers is not there. And that's pretty much been the story of Green Bay all in, in their history. A great quarterback, because even when Brett Favre was there, you can argue that there weren't that many talented options for him either. It's just that Brett Favre was Brett Favre. And. Again, it's like we keep saying, there's nothing wrong with having Aaron Rodgers be your guy and your rock, but everybody needs help every now and then. And maybe that's why Green Bay is not winning as many titles as they should, because they keep relying. And not a bad thing that you do rely on him, but you got to get him some help. If the guy goes missing, or not missing, but if he gets injured, your season's over. Yeah, I think that's also one of the challenges compared to like a small market football team. You know, you still have to fit. 53 men on the roster, and of course, 22 more important as your starters. But you may not be able to get every single piece you need when it comes to a smaller market football team compared to a larger market football team. So I think that's a little bit more of a challenge when it comes to the Green Bay Packers in that factor. But this is also at the end of the day, just the Green Bay is going to have a lot to do this offseason because they need to make some big moves. They cannot just go into next year saying, oh, we just didn't have Aaron Rodgers and we were okay. No, Aaron Rodgers was the only thing that was making your team okay at that point. So I, I really think you're Green Bay has to make a lot of different changes. They have to try and get a running game going. We're seeing so many different times it's just being a revolving door at running bats. And the best one being Aaron Rodgers every single time. So there's nothing that's going right in my mind when it comes to Green Bay except for Devontae Adams, who continues to emerge and look like a phenomenal wide receiver when it doesn't matter if it's Rodgers or Hundley as his quarterback. And as always in our podcast episodes, we have our beard bat where we take a look back in sports history and taking a look back on November 30th as we're recording this podcast on Thursday, November 30th, and two real big things stand out to me on looking back in sports history. So, number one, going in 1993, year I was born, uh, the Jacksonville 
Jaguars franchise becomes a reality on this date in November 30th, 1993. The NFL awarded its 30th franchise to Jay Wayne Weaver and the city of Jacksonville at the owners' meeting in Chicago, Illinois. In 1994, Tom Coughlin would then come onto the team. And so, yeah, so November 30th, 1993, the Jacksonville Jaguars were officially in the NFL. And a couple of years back in 2015, NBA star Kobe Bryant of the Los Angeles Lakers announced his intention to retire at the end of the season. Of course, at the end of the year, I think, against the Utah Jazz, he put up over 60 points in one of the more memorable finishes to a player's last game. But it was on November 30th of 2015 that Kobe Bryant said this would be his last season. And a real enjoyable season. As I'm a Lakers fan, and I've always enjoyed, my favorite player has been Kobe Bryant. So I always sad to see him now not with the Los Angeles Lakers. And I guess now the face of the franchise is Lonzo slash Lavar Ball at this point. No, 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 no. It's Lavar. It's Lavar. It's Lavar. It's not Lonzo. It, it's not Lonzo. It's not even. It's a fan. It's a player's dad that is yeah. the, the face. They of might as well just change the logo and have his giant face in the middle of center. Ah, uh, that would be the great memes of uh, <laughs> uh, the historic franchise is now down to the franchise player being a dad, but yep. <laughs> and of course, after uh, Beard Bat is our dude and dunce of the week. And so, my dude of the week pick is going to be Aaron Gordon of the Orlando Magic. Gordon put up 40 points, 15 rebounds, he had four assists, and he also had four steals in the 121 to, I believe, 108 win over the Oklahoma City Thunder. So, Gordon picks up his first dude of the week award. On Sarasso and the Beard, and of course, Jose, who is our dunce of the week? Oh well, I had a lot of options this week, honestly, and I thought it could—I thought it would have been too easy to pick Ben McAdoo. I think he knows. Yeah, I hate his guts by now. Everybody <laughs> knows I hate his guts by now. So you're safe this week because something dumber happened this past week that I just can't get over. The Oklahoma football team, the Sooners, home of Baker Mayfield. Why am I choosing the actual team, though? Well, because as you know, if you don't know, Baker Mayfield made some inappropriate. Of the closing team a couple weeks ago, where he was grabbing his crotch because they refused to shake his hand. Long story short, he was not named the team captain for this week, this past weekend's football game, and he was really emotional because I believe it was senior week that week as well too, and he was emotional that he wasn't going to be a captain. So what did the other captains do? They brought his jersey out to midfield. Now, I'm sorry, but the last time I checked, if you bring a player's jersey out to midfield, it's because something bad happens, and I'm like, I don't know death or like an accident or something i flipped out thinking something happened to baker mayfield just to find out that he was on the sidelines the whole time as they brought his jersey to midfield i don't understand it it was a dumb move and it was actually kind of sad that you brought a grown man's jersey who wasn't able to be a captain because he was too busy grabbing his crotch and that's why you brought his jersey to midfield but nonetheless congratulations you're done to the week oklahoma sooners <laughs> a uh, fun story on that one of course uh Certainly, with college football, it's getting real interesting. And I'm, I'm oh, this year has been phenomenal. I mean, in terms of, in terms of parity, and and for the last couple of years with college football, we've been talking about how it's Alabama, it's Ohio State. This year has been a really fun year. And again, 
the top four has been a revolving door. And I think it's re- it's been a really interesting year in college football this year. So kudos to all those teams, honestly. And, and I know it's coming down to the wire, and a lot of teams are playing each other. And it's going to be one of those moments where uh, does Alabama get in? And I'm just going mean, to say Nick, now. Nick, Alabama's on the outside looking in. I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about here. And I'm just going to say it now. No matter what, in my mind, oh, Alabama should not get into the college playoffs. Yeah, he was almost, he was almost a candidate for Dunst of the Week for begging last week, honestly, because that, that was pretty sad. <laughs> I, I honest, if if Alabama please let us in, please. <laughs> if if Alabama gets in, I almost view it as it, it, it's a commercial in that factor of sponsor, sponsors than it is on their resume. They they have no good wins, and, and you can tell me, oh, that's just some of the teams haven't been good. No, Saban pits his schedule. He pits neutral fields when he faces better opponents. This was the first time he faced a road game against like one of the nationally ranked teams, and it cost him big, and he lost to Auburn. And there's no reason in my mind Alabama should get in, even with one loss, whether Ohio State gets in or different teams have different chances of getting in. But Alabama just does not have a strong enough schedule, and I don't think they should be getting in at all. Yeah. I will say, I think I really want to see the University of Miami get in. I know they had a terrible loss to Pittsburgh, but that team has been fun to watch. Um, they've had a lot of impressive wins all year long, so hopefully they can get back on the winning track and sneak their way back into the top four. Yeah, but this this has certainly been an exciting college football season. I, I, have, yeah. I have enjoyed I mean, this. Nick, Alabama's on the outside looking in. That's yeah. all you need to know. The, on, I mean, that, at, that's, on how well the college football season has been. That That is the perfect sentence to put it as. Uh Final thought for me, uh, keep your eye on the Rams. And it's not because they're 8-3. and three, It's really because of who they're versing in their schedule. They've had to play the Vikings. They had to play the Saints. They're playing the Cardinals this week. But ignore that one for a moment. And they still have to play the Eagles and the Seahawks over the next two weeks after the Cardinals game. So you're talking about four teams that possibly all are making the playoffs, uh, or three out of the four are looking at making the playoffs. And this is coming towards middle of the end of the NFL season before playoff time, and the Rams are going to have a lot of experience going against almost every NFC playoff team. So that's an interesting factor to me on how they do against these couple teams and how it looks before they go into the playoffs. So that's where I'm really interested on the Los Angeles Rams. Yeah, my closing thought is kudos to the referee. I don't know your name. Who threw out LeBron James out of that game day today. LeBron James' first career ejection ever in his career. Congratulations to that ref. I owe you a dinner, and congratulations because you've been inducted. In, you're a very first inductee into the Talking Beard Hall of Fame. I'm not sure who else is going to be in this Hall of Fame, but it's off to a good start with you, Mr. Referee. Thank you for throwing out LeBron James so out of that basketball game. It's pretty much Jose's, instead of due to the week, it's Hall of Fame status. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not going to be inducting people too often, so that referee should feel really proud. If anybody knows his name, feel free to tag him if you have him on Twitter or Facebook or something. I don't know. And as a great segment to push it in, you can always follow us on Twitter at Sarasso underscore the beard or on our Facebook page, Sarasso and the beard. And for a fun note for us, uh, Woody Page from ESPN's Around the Horn just followed us on Twitter. So I, honestly, for me, that was pretty exciting. Uh, so that was a cool aspect. And as well, you can always find our podcast episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, or the S&D podcast channel, where you can also check out all of the S&D podcasts 
on the S&D Podcast channel. And as always, thank you for listening to Sarasso and the Beard, episode 14. Once again, I'm Nick Sarasso. And I'm Jose Rivera, the Talking Beard. And you have been listening to Sarasso and the Beard, episode 14 podcast. Are you still mixing station gas and oil for your string trimmer, leaf blower, or chainsaw? Eliminate the mess and the guesswork with True Fuel, the original pre-mixed two-cycle fuel. True Fuel is ethanol-free and precision-engineered for small engines, improving performance, and extending the life of your outdoor power equipment. And True Fuel is available for both two- and four-cycle engines. Empower your equipment with True Fuel. Available at your local home and garden center today. So let's say you're into yoga or Pilates, or maybe you dabble in gymnastics like me. Either way, you know being flexible is key to doing what you love. That's why Smoothie King created this stretch and flex smoothie for people like us. With whole fruits and organic veggies, plus type two collagen, make it part of your daily fitness routine to support flexibility and joint health. So try the stretch and flex smoothie in tart cherry or pineapple kale. Order online today for pickup or delivery. Smoothie King, rule the day.